We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, Psychic phenomenon, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, the X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And this is, in fact, A Different Perspective, and I am Argon Targaryen. No, I'm really Kevin Randall. Uh, I want to do something weird here before I uh, get to Mark O'Connell. Um, as you probably know, if you've been paying attention, I'm a fan of Game of Thrones, and I've thrown a couple of things into the program periodically to hint at that. For example, I had once, I often say in the fall, winter is coming, which was the big thing when they started the program. And uh, when they had the Hodor episode on Hold the Door, I work that into the uh, conversation a couple of times as well. And that really comes from science fiction conventions because once programming lets out and everybody swarms the elevators, people are always shouting, hold the door. And I, that's where George R.R. R. Martin actually picked up that uh, picked up that phrase, which I thought was interesting. But I bring this up because tomorrow, of course, they have a big, I think they're going to have a big battle. I wanted to predict who's going to end up on the Iron Throne because I think I have it figured out and I wanted this documented before heirs. I believe it's going to be Gentry Baratheon, who is was the bastard child of the King Robert Baratheon, who was the last person to, I guess, legitimately sit on the throne. And so we had the episode where Daenerys had uh, announced he was no longer a bastard and, and gave him the lordship of their ancestral home or something. So I think it's going to be Robert Baratheon's once bastard child going to be the new 
the person who sits on the throne. I think Daenerys is going to die in the battle and John is going to abdicate in the favor of, of uh, Yentry. Anyhow, I just wanted to bring that up because I wanted the prediction there. The other thing I wanted to do is uh, I, I mentioned last week, Rob McConnell has initiated the International UFO Reporting and Research Center, the IUFO. UFORRC, which you can find at www.iufORRC.com, and there's a reporting form there uh, if you've had a sighting. And uh, the, the idea is to gather information for a dating, 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 a database that um, will help us uh, understand more about the UFO phenomenon. And finally, I uh, was alerted to a, a free book website. You can go on and read books for free. And I found a couple of my books on there, which annoyed me immensely. They had no permission to do it. They were on there illegally. And they end up um, costing the authors money. And if, if you're into cheating people out of the money they've earned, well, all, all well and good. But the thing is, there are some legitimate uh, sites like that. And one of them is BookBub, and I subscribe to that. You can buy books uh, anywhere from 99 cents to $1.99, $2.99, and a lot of them are up there free in it with the author's permission. This other site didn't have the author's permission, and I just wanted it known that um, we've got to look at that because the person who makes the least on the book, the cover price of the book, is probably the writer. And everybody thinks we make gobs of money. We're not all J.K. Rowling and that sort of thing. We earn our living by writing these books. And if you go to the website, you're kind of taking money out of our pocket. So I think you all should be aware of that. I'm sure Mark agrees with me on this because as a writer, he's probably faced the same thing. So now that I've shot my face off for way too long, and uh, I should announce I'm really not Argon Targaryen. I am really Kevin Randall. Um, I'm going to be joined here by Mark O'Connell, who has written several episodes of Star Trek, The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space, Space Nine, and one of which, the, D, the Dark... Deep Space Nine episode, Who Mourns the Morn, uh, was named by uh, Hugo-winning science fiction writer Charlie Jane Anders as number 72 on the io9.com list of the top 10 Star Trek episodes of all time, which is quite an accomplishment because there's so many of the episodes out there now. We won't mention that J.J. Abrams has managed to screw up the franchise. That's a whole other argument. Um, Mark has had uh, several feature film projects in development with Disney, DreamWorks Animation, Launchpad Productions, Barcelona Films, and Al Ruddy Productions. He uh, currently writes a UFO blog, High Strangeness, at www.highstrangenessufo.com, and has made his reality show debut, 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 way to go, debut in 2015 on Mysteries of the Monument on the Travel Channel. Mark has written Close Enca The Close Encounters Man, which is one of the reasons we brought him on, which is about J. Allen Hynek. And this whole program today kind of, uh, I guess, generated when History was doing their Project Blue Book series. And I got interested in it because I wondered how the Hynek family felt about the, the project. And I knew Mark had a... Um, good working relationship with them and had written the book about it, The Close Encounters Man, about J. Allen Hynek, and he would have some interesting comments to make. Mark, after all of that, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. That was a great intro. I really appreciate all the kind words. It's great to be here. And you didn't appreciate the Game of Thrones prediction? <laughs> I, I appreciate your gutsiness in going out <laughs> on a limb. I don't know the characters or the storylines well enough. Um, to to really know, I don't even know who that person is who you said is going to end up on the on the. He the, was the uh, throne of he iron. Was, he was the bastard child of Robert Baratheon, who is. And I I don't know who that is either. He was so. the king King Robert Baratheon. The, the series opens with him being the king, and he's married to Cersei Lannister, and she engineers his death, and eventually because that would put her son on the Iron Throne, but her son really isn't a Baratheon child. It's the incestuous offspring with her and her twin brother Jamie and we're getting way deep into Game of Thrones uh, now. Anyway, uh, I just I just had the epiphany the other day when I was doing my workout on the treadmill that uh, the least likely twist of the story would be uh, Genfrey Baratheon ending up on the Iron Throne because um, everybody expects it's going to be Daenerys or it's going to be Jon Snow or one of those people and I think it's going to be this guy. So I, I thought I'd take a shot. Uh, well, I, I think I think I just want to put, I just want to jump in here and just say, though, I think that's the sign of a really well-made TV show. That's really good storytelling when fans like you and, and millions of others are 
are making predictions about how the story's going to end, who the winners and losers are going to be. I mean, for a show to to you know to create that much of a connection with its fans, I always admire that because that just means they are doing a lot of things right. Oh, absolutely. But I think in the last couple of episodes, they've done a lot of things wrong and it's kind of annoying uh, to the fans. And I, and I see a lot of that stuff online about it as well, that people yeah. are really annoyed about the direction. Take. The great battle of, of Winterfell, I mean, the, the military tactics used were absolutely ridiculous. And one of the and I shouldn't do this, but one of the great complaints was that it was uh, anti-immigrant. That episode was anti-immigrant because oh. the Dorothy horde was sent in to fight the uh, walking dead and were pretty well eliminated, and I think, you know, they're saying, that's anti-immigrant. I said, these guys are not immigrants. It's an invading army, for crying out loud. I mean, it is literally an invading army. So this immigrant argument shouldn't be made. But we've digressed way too far. <laughs> okay. I'll and shut I up about Game of Thrones. I have nothing I, more to add. Well, I, I if, if the fans of the program are interested in it, I can go on for hours about Game of Thrones, <laughs> I'm sure they would like to know more about um, Jalen Hynek and Project Blue Book. So the first question is, from your experience and your research, and, and I've talked to Paul Hynek about it as well, but what, did you, what do you think that, that uh, Hynek would have thought about, um, about the program, the Project Blue Book show? Well, I don't think he would have thought much of it, honestly. Um, I, I think he'd probably... I, I need to watch. I need to watch my words here. I'll, I'll just keep it simple. I don't think he'd be on board. I just don't. Um, and and I can tell you, I, I can point to a very specific point in. Um, it was actually in the very first episode of of Project Blue Book. There's a moment where um, the character of J. Allen Hynek is explaining to the character of his wife why he's accepted this job with the Air Force to study UFOs. And he says, well, there were three reasons. He said, number one, I could keep teaching. That was big. Number two, it would bring in some extra money. That's big. But he said the biggest thing of all, number three, was, and then he get, looks real seriously at his wife, and he says, I want recognition. This is going to give me the recognition I've always wanted as a scientist. And I just thought, What? That is absolutely antithetical. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. To J. Allen Hynek's character, he did not want recognition. He did not want fame and fortune. And if he had, getting involved in UFO studies in the late 1940s would have been the worst possible way to achieve recognition. It would have been the worst kind of recognition to get for a young scientist really just starting his career. Well, the so, question you, you could easily ask is, how would he know that he would gain recognition by studying UFOs? Oh, that's, that is a great observation, Kevin. I hadn't even thought of that. You're right. Take it a step further back. He would have just assumed that this would be something very low-key and hush-hush that nobody would ever know about. I, I can't believe I didn't think of that, but hats off to you. I think that's an excellent <laughs> point. Well, I, I was, you know, in the summer of 1947, it's like a passing fad. Yeah. You know, exactly. and people are talking about it, but it's a fad. And how many fads have we had? Right. That, that sort of thing. Heineck firmly believed at the time that it, it was a fad that would dry up in a year or two. Um, and that was one of the reasons he was willing to do it, because he thought, okay, 
this is going to amount to nothing, but I'll pick up a little extra spending money, so why not? Well, let's, uh, let me break here because I've, I've got to take a break. Okay. Uh, I will be back with Mark O'Connell. I promise we won't talk about Game of Thrones anymore unless I can think of something really fun to say. Uh, his book is The Close Encounters Man's, which is the uh, bi biography of J. Allen Hynek. Uh, the website is www.highstrangenessufo.com. Mine, of course, is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And you should know that um, I will announce at the end of the program who's next week's guest is. And if you put a comment to the blog entry on this program, I'll ask the questions to, um, to Jerry Clark, who's coming up next week. We will be back right after this with Mark O'Connell. It's hard to listen to the news without realizing we're living in volatile, unprecedented times. Yet never has there been such an opportunity to transform the human condition. As old structures fail, where can we find the guidance to co-create a better way? Find Your Path Home is an ever-evolving, leading-edge information, education, and healing resource center designed to support and guide you on your path to unity and enlightenment. Based on sound principles employed by Shaman Worldwide, we provide techniques that can support you through the current transitions, offering online shamanic classes, international long-distance shamanic healing sessions, complimentary Mission Evolution radio episodes and Stairway to Heaven TV vignettes, seminars, retreats, and much more. All of this can be found on findyourpathhome.com. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. I am back with Mark O'Connell. He's the author of The Close Encounters Man, which, of course, is the book about J. Allen Hynek. And there's a lot of other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, which is xzbn.net. Take a look at uh, the lineup and see if there's uh, something that interests you. Uh, maybe find a program that will really excite you as opposed to this one. When we went away, we were talking about J. Allen Hynek's reaction to Project Blue Book and the idea that it was um, a way of him to gain notoriety, which is probably not the right word, gain some fame. Um, and we, have, we thought in 1947 he wouldn't have been really excited about that. But he did, uh, I guess, become a real presence in the UFO field with his relation to the Air Force. Uh, was that intentional or was that just sort of a byproduct of the investigations? That, that was a byproduct. He, he liked to describe himself as an innocent bystander who got shot which I always, I always found pretty amusing. He, there he was, a mild-mannered uh, astronomy professor teaching at the Ohio State University, just minding his own business. Um, and he had done some government contracting work in previous years, especially during World War II. He was being called on uh, quite a bit by the Air Force to do astronomical and atmospheric research for them. Um, and he had done some top secret work during World War II on developing the proximity fuse for our weapons. So he was a known quantity to the Air Force. And when this whole UFO thing sprung up out of nowhere in 1947-48, um, and the Air Force was just caught flat-footed, they couldn't explain it. They couldn't, they couldn't reassure the public that every, everything was going to be okay. And they, they desperately needed a credible scientist 
to assure the public that um, that there was nothing to this UFO thing. So uh, they went and and they were operating. The Air Force folks here were operating out of uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. Well, Heineck was teaching at Ohio State, right down the road in uh, Columbus, and so he, um, you know, he was convenient. He was close by, and so the Air Force, a couple, a couple staffers from uh, uh, the Air Force at Wright Patterson, went to visit Heineck at Ohio State. You know, had a little conversation with him, asked him what he thought about UFOs, and he kind of laughed it off and said, "Well, I think it's going to be a phase. You know, it's it's a fad. People are going to forget about it in a year or two. Uh, and they said, well, we'd like to hire you to, you know, convince the public that UFO reports are, are nothing, that there's nothing to it. And he, you know, he, so he didn't, Heineck didn't go looking for this. It just sort of fell into his lap. But again, he just thought, well, okay, easy way to pick up uh, some extra money for my growing family. And he also thought, and I always thought this was interesting. He also, one of the reasons he took the job was he thought he was a big, he was a science educator, not just n- in, in terms of his, his college campus, but he also liked to educate the public whenever he could about astronomy. So, so when Heineck had this opportunity to work with the Air Force on their UFO study group, he saw it as an opportunity to teach real science to the American public and, and show them know that you, you, know, you see something funny in the sky, that doesn't automatically mean it's something scary or alien. It, it, there could be a very, very simple uh, scientific explanation for it, and he jumped at the opportunity to sort of educate the public in that. So, those were his real motivations for going to work uh, with the Air Force. On, of course, it was called Project Sign at the time when they first recruited him. But those were Heineck's real motives. He he didn't care about being famous, and and as as we mentioned before, if he had cared about being famous, this would have been the worst way to go about doing it. So, so that moment in the TV show when he said that just kind of. I just felt like, wow, if you can't even get that one basic truth about your main character correct, then there's not much hope that anything else in this show is going to be correct either. So that's kind of when I gave up on it. Well, he, he also had one other attribute, I think, that many other scientists may not have had, and that was that he already had a security clearance or had yes. one for uh, during the Second World War. And I know that getting a security clearance can be a long involved process because I had to go through it a couple of times myself with my Air Force and, and Army careers. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, the fact that he was already cleared or had a had a file and that would be a, a benefit to them as well. I was reading um, on the Charles Witted sighting. That's the uh, two airline pilots that saw the cigar-shaped craft with the square windows back in mm-hmm. 1947. And it was one of the things that... Uh, um, bothered the Air Force immensely. And Heineck had written or had suggested that it was a meteor, a bolide, a very bright meteor. And on the card, the project card in the Project Blue Book files, an Air Force officer disagreed with him about that. I mean, here's the astronomer saying, well, it sounds like a bolide, and the Air Force officer saying, well, no, it's not. Uh, Mm -hmm. Did that that sort of thing happen often? Oh, yeah. I mean, Heineck, when you you read Heineck's findings on that Charles Witted case, I'm glad you brought that case up because it's always been one of my favorites. Um, but when you read Heineck's notes on on that case, you can just see the kind of contortions he went through to try to come up with a rational, scientific, natural explanation for this weird things these this, this weird thing that these pilots reported seeing. And yeah, he he kind of just bends over backwards trying to make the the facts fit the story that the Air Force wants to tell. Um, and it, and it didn't go over real well. That case that case kind of swung back and forth. Uh, you had the two airline pilots on the Eastern Airline flight. They were both Air Force veterans. They were very credible witnesses. Both of their stories coincided. They matched perfectly. Neither one of them ever changed their story. One iota. Um, there was a passenger on the plane that night who also saw it. It was in the middle of the night, so apparently only one passenger was awake and saw this thing zoom by the plane. Uh, and that that passenger actually turned out to be a friend of Alan Hynek's. So Hynek was able to interview him as well. And then there was also, there was a, an Air Force uh, ground crew guy at an Air Force base near Macon, Georgia, who saw the same thing that same night. And his description of this, this rocket-powered missile with rows of windows along the side perfectly matched the description given by the two Eastern Airline pilots. So... This is like the best kind of UFO case there is because you've got 
you've got now four different witnesses. They're in different geographic locations, and they're describing essentially seeing the exact same thing. So for Hynek, in later years, this would have been the ideal UFO report. It would have been very, very hard for him to knock it down. But coming as it did at the very beginning of Hynek's UFO career, he did not want to go there. He wanted to explain it away. So, yeah, as I say, he, he went through all sorts of contortions to try to come up with that bolide explanation. And, and, and that's what it said in the official record for a while. Eventually, I think it was changed back to an unknown because the bolide story just, just didn't add up. It just didn't hold up. But it does hold up. If you remember the these, story, yes, when you when you remember the Zon Four reentry in uh, March of 1968, I believe it was. Um, a lot of people knew what it was that that this was something uh, the, the returning spacecraft breaking up as it reentered the atmosphere, but a number of people drew cigar shaped craft with square windows and uh, a flame out the back, just like uh, Charles Woodhead had done, and if you look at there was a wonderful YouTube video, and I don't know if it's still available, called Meteor Compilation. Mm-hmm. And it was three minutes and 19 seconds of people who had managed the, the videotape um, uh, meteor falls. And you can see them breaking mm-hmm. up and that sort of thing. And so if you get a quick look at something, you get the impression of a lighted cockpit pit and windows along a fuselage and a flame out the back. And I think that um, given that and the, the drawings made, which resemble what Charles Whitted had, had uh drawn for for the Air Force back in, or I really should say the Army Air Forces back in the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it suggests that people can mistake a very bright object they're not used to like that, especially in bizarre conditions um, as a, a cigar-shaped craft. And I think that that, I think the bolide answer works um, given what we know today. I, that's very interesting. What's the name of that case? The the Zon 4 reentry. It uh, was, I think, it was March of '68. I'm, um, I, I, I've done stuff on my blog, which is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Just type in Charles Witted, and you can get to mm. those, to that, to that information. Okay, but I'll think, do that. I'm interested in that. I think the point is, I think Heineck was right in his initial, um, his initial assessment, and and I was, I was kind of surprised at the Air Force, which was looking for explanations and solutions mm-hmm. uh, would reject what could be a very plausible solution. I know in the initial, not the initial encounters with the Air Force or the Army Air Forces, but uh, newspapers, they, they had talked about turbulence from the thing as it passed by. Mm-hmm. If that was true, then we, we eliminate the bolide explanation. But in the initial reports in the Project Blue Book files, there's nothing about turbulence. It only appears yeah. in newspaper yeah. accounts later on. Mm-hmm. And so you eliminate that aspect of it. And you've got a, a meteor that's coming kind of straight at you because they don't have to fall straight down. They can look like they're coming at you. And you've got a cloud cover. It can give you a, a weird illusion of the thing climbing into the clouds. So I, I, And I brought that up because um, I had just read something about that a couple of days ago. So I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Okay. I, I've got it. I have to admit this is new information to me, and I would love to read up about it more because, like I said, I've always been fascinated by that case. In my, research, in my research for the book, the funniest explanation I came across was somebody tried to explain it away as, well, they saw a reflection of their own plane in a ice crystal cloud. I think that was what Donald Menzel came up with. And we don't, um, we don't pay attention to him. We sure don't, because his explanations just get weirder and weirder <laughs> as time goes by. But his, his attempt at explaining Charles Witted is sort of the pilot seeing a reflection of their own plane in a cloud is is really really a stretch yeah that and and the lights would have been dimmed in the cabin because people were sleeping right and plus they were traveling in opposite directions so how can one be how can you have a reflection that's traveling in the opposite direction we're gonna have to take a break here i am with mark o'connell the book is the close encounters man the website is www.heightstrangenessufo.com mine as i've said before is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and uh, you take a look at, I think, the government UFO files, which I wrote, um, talks about the child-witted case in there as well. We will be back right after this with Mark O'Connell, so stick around.
They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnick's, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the Word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God, and finally, after the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand, live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. I am here with Mark O'Connell. He is the author of The Close Encounters Man, which is the autobiography, the autobiography, the biography of G. Allen Hynek. <laughs> uh, G. Allen Hynek. Um, I think we've exhausted Charles Witted. And as, as I said earlier, you know, I, I announced the next um, program on my blog, and I say, you know, if you've got um, questions, put them in the comments section, and I'll see if I can get them asked. So I've got some comments that were uh, sent to me, and I thought I'd ask you the questions. Great. First, uh, they wanted to know, did Alan Hynek compile a list of those cases, say 10 or so, that he felt were truly unexplainable? I don't know if it, that would have been, say, a physical paper list that he would have kept anywhere, but certainly in his head he did have, he, he was always, his head was just so so filled with case details and case reports that, yeah, I, I would say he always had a list of um the most interesting, the most compelling, and from what I have heard from some of Hynek's closest uh, colleagues and compatriots, number one on that list was always the Lonnie Zamora, uh, Socorro, New Mexico sighting in the, in the mid-60s. That was pretty much Hynek's uh, gold standard for many, many years for a, a, a plausible, believable UFO report. Of course, it was a close encounter of the second kind. It involved physical uh, physical effect uh, on on uh, the ground where the UFO was had landed. Um, so yeah, Heineck definitely had lists. It's kind of funny. The the first thing I thought of when you read that question, Kevin, was Heineck was kind of notorious among his friends for having his home office just piled with UFO files everywhere. Of course, you know he would go to Ohio about once a month while he was working for a Project Blue Book. 
you know, to do his case analyses there, very often some of those those files would come home with him or copies of those files would come home with him to Chicago and they would end up in his home office and they were just piled up all over the place. And his friends, people like Jerry Clark and Jacques Vallée, they would wait until they knew that uh, Dr. Heineck and his wife were going to be out of town. And they would sneak into the house and they would start, they would organize and alphabetize as many of the files as they could before Alan came home. From from what I learned, it, it was pretty much a hopeless task. They never got ahead of him, but they kept trying. Well, I, you know, I, two comments spring to mind. First of all is the cases he brought home probably were not classified. Right. I can't believe he would bring home classified material uh, because that would be a crime. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm not accusing him of committing any crimes. And and talking to Carmen Morano, who had been technically the last officer in charge of Project Blue Book after uh, Quintanella had left, uh, he said a lot of the, ca- the later cases weren't classified at all, and you can go through the files and see that they're not classified. Well, the other- le- oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say the other thing is um, I-, I looked at the Lonnie Zamora case in depth and did a book Encounter in the Desert that came out just a couple of years ago, and I I could see that Heineck was very fascinated by that case. Mm-hmm. The, the, the thing that I do not understand is in the days that followed, there was discussion of other witnesses, mm-hmm. not necessarily Opal Grinder in the car from Colorado that uh, nobody could find, but there were people who had called the sheriff's department or the police department and said they had heard this thing. And they called prior to Zani, Lonnie Zamora seeing or hearing anything and reporting it back. So that wasn't generated by the publicity they had called in prior to that before there was any publicity j allen heineck the nicap guy ray sanford the air force people nobody tried to find those witnesses i find that just absolutely astonishing i i i get where you're coming from and i guess if i if i had to make an excuse for allen heineck for not following that up on that case better it would be that by 1965, when this was all occurring, there was so much rancor and ill will between Heineck and, and Hector Quintanilla um, that Heineck was constantly kneecapped and hamstrung when he was trying to investigate these important cases. Quintanilla would just deny him funding, deny him uh, you know, travel opportunities. Um, so I, I, I don't have any evidence of this, but I, would, I feel comfortable speculating that Heineck may not have had the opportunity or the option at all to follow up on any other leads simply because he was so constrained um, by Quintanilla. Well, I can I can kind of uh, verify part of that because there was another case that happened the day or two after uh, Lonnie Zamora sighting in northern New Mexico, La Madera, I think it was. And Heineck had heard about it and wanted to go there. I mean, it's like a couple of hours drive from, from Socorro to this place up near um, Santa Fe, I believe it was. And of course he was denied permission to do it. And I'm thinking you've just got another sighting that sort of matches this and you won't let the guy go investigate it. But the real, the real point is not necessarily that Heineck didn't investigate. Stanford didn't follow up on it. The nightcap guy, um, Richard Holder, who was the air for the army guy, he didn't follow up, but the FBI guy didn't follow up on it. Um, Moody was there as well, Sergeant Moody. He didn't follow up on it. Nobody followed up on this uh, part of the part of the case. So I, I'm not pointing a finger at, at Heineck for not doing it. I'm I'm just suggesting here was an opportunity to make the case even better than he thought it was, mm, and it uh-huh. was just a, just another lost opportunity. And I, I look through the files and I see all kinds of lost opportunities like that. Oh yeah, yeah. That's kind of you can almost define Heineck's UFO career as one lost opportunity after another. Uh, I'm I'm not surprised that that uh, Moody didn't follow up on anything. I mean, Moody Moody was basically there to just knock down anything Heineck came up with, as far as I can understand their relationship. So that that's not a huge surprise at all. Um, but you know, Heineck's Heineck's take on Lonnie Zamora just always fascinated me because he he really zeroed in on the fact that Lonnie Zamora was not. Lonnie Zamora did not have an imagination, okay? I'm, I, and I don't, he, he didn't mean that in a, in a bad way at all. He was just stating a fact. Officer Zamora is not a fantasist. He does not imagine things. 
Um, he 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 doesn't read poetry. <laughs> he, I mean, Heineck actually said this in one of his reports. He's like, Zamora does not read poetry. He doesn't hang out with wild women. He just gives out speeding tickets. And, and drinks an occasional beer, which is no big yes. deal. <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, so that, that case is pretty pretty fascinating what always I, one of the one of the details of the Zamora case that always jumps out at me is one of the theories that was floated at the time was that this may have been a prototype NASA lunar lander that had launched from you know Holloman Air Force Base or you know one of the other government research sites in the area and that that does sound kind of plausible until you remember no the the lunar lander for the Apollo missions left behind half of its structure when it departed and the the ship that Lonnie Zamora saw did not leave anything behind except for scorched bush and you know landing pad imprints so I, I always thought that was interesting that people went for that theory when it was pretty seems pretty clear to me that that couldn't possibly have been it well to point a finger at the debunkers they'll throw a lot of mud at the wall and see what sticks and if they got a plausible if they got what they think is a plausible explanation they'll run with it yeah uh, run it into the ground and i know um philip class had said well there was this guy that lived um, a quarter of a mile away or maybe not that far and he he was there with his windows open or he was out working in his garden or something and he didn't hear anything and he didn't see anything and he went up there uh, a few hours after this happened and he didn't see anything there and I'm thinking uh, from the point that Lonnie Zamora got there till way after dark um, there were people on that site yeah a lot of people and uh, you know I, I think the guy's um, statements to to class uh, just don't make any sense uh, weren't there weren't there some um i'm trying to remember this now weren't some of those uh un, unknown witnesses didn't somebody track them down to a, a family in iowa or a couple no no no, no. There, there were two guys from iowa who claimed they were they claimed they had been driving oh, through town at the okay, time and okay. they saw the same crap but you go back and you look at the uh the information that was printed in the newspaper, and it was clear that they didn't see anything because they mentioned the mel melted pop bottle, and that that's key because that's from the La Madeira case in northern oh, Mex northern New Mexico, okay. and I, I give no credibility to those guys. Um, a fellow here in Iowa, Ralph DeGraw, had um, interviewed them. Oh, several years after the fact, their stories didn't match. It changed. They were talking about a craft with windows on it and all kinds of stuff. So uh -huh. it was clear that that story was bogus, but. Uh, um, and and I, and I discuss it at length in uh, Encounters in the Desert, which is nice that you brought it up because now I could plug my book that way. <laughs> You're very looking, welcome. I'm always looking for that. Let's uh, <laughs> uh, any any other cases that really struck uh, Lonnie uh, struck Alan as uh, exciting or great or top ten. Well, the the Lawrence Coyne, the helicopter case, and of course Alan wasn't. Um, he was busy with uh, running KUFOS and teaching at Northwestern at the time, so he did not directly investigate that case. But his sidekick, Jenny Zeidman, did. Um, and that case was, you know, again, talk about gold standards. That the, the coin copter case was a real, a really uh, important event. And it took place just a week or so after the Pascagoula uh, abduction. So it was part of this huge one-two punch of these two really spectacular UFO cases that made huge national headlines in, in October 1973. Um, and the coin cases is, is Heineck was really fascinated by it because, again, like with the Child's Witness, Child's Witted case, uh, in the coin case you had a, a crew of four Army helicopter a crew uh, flying home uh, over Ohio at night. Uh, they had just been. They had just had their uh, annual physicals. Let, let me let me break in here because I'm okay. running out of time. I got to take a break here. Okay. We we will come back and talk about the coin helicopter case briefly, and I have a couple of other questions if we can get to them. Great. Uh, the book is the Close Encounters Man. It's the biography of Jalen Hynek by Mark O'Connell. And the website is highstrangestufo.com. Mine, of course, is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And since he brought it up, the book that uh, talks about Zamora at length is Encounter in the Desert, which you can get on Amazon. If you want it uh, on your Kindle, you can have it immediately, if not sooner, uh, on there. We will be back with Mark O'Connell right after this. I am getting a little long-winded with these case descriptions.
here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. Christopher Fulton is a survivor of the National Security State. All he wanted to do was preserve history when he acquired a Cartier watch from the estate of President Kennedy's personal secretary. But that simple act set off a terrible chain reaction. He was pursued by the U.S. Justice Department and the FBI, thrust into the middle of the U.S. government's Assassination Records Review Board, even monitored and pursued by the Russian government. All because that Cartier watch was the missing link of evidence, a timepiece worn by JFK that fateful day in Dallas, a link resulting in Christopher being incarcerated and attacked for nine years because he opened a hidden chapter in history. The intriguing journey outlined fully in Christopher Fulton's memoir, The Inheritance, is available now through Trinday.com or Amazon.com. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination by Christopher and Michelle Fulton is a must-read, an incredible tale of how easily our own government can overrule justice. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination. I am here with Mark O'Connell. The book is The Close Encounters Man, which is the biography of J. Allen Hynek. And I sometimes wish that we could get some of the byplay that goes on during the commercial breaks uh, on the program, because some of it's really quite quite good. Uh, we were talking about the Coin helicopter case when we went away, and um, we don't really have a lot of time to go into that. And I'd like to get to these other questions, so I'm going to blow that off and move on. <laughs> Uh, if you want to take a look, the coin helicopter case is uh, well publicized all over. There's lots of information about it, especially at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. There you go. Uh, next question. Did Heineck ever regret his membership in the Robertson panel? And I understand that he really wasn't a member of the Robertson panel, but right. did he did he regret the interaction with the Robertson panel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He felt he felt, he, you know, he was he was brought in as, you know. He was brought in as a witness, basically. You're right. He was not. He was not part of the panel. He was not really part of the discussion at all. Uh, he was brought in to offer his opinions on this, that, or the other thing, and felt that he had generally been uh, condescended to, uh, ignored, uh, talked down to, and and basically felt that um, nobody on the nobody on the panel really was interested in what he had to say. He was. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say he was pretty bitter about the whole experience uh his contribution you say was just completely ignored yeah yeah it was just brushed off he was particularly horrified by their handling of uh uh the tremont and utah movie footage they just projected they projected the movie on a wall instead of on a theater screen and everybody just dismissed it all as oh obviously those are birds those are birds nobody would listen to any other theory heineck just thought it was it was a big waste of time well, you, you've got a, a kind of point one of the fingers at the Blue Book guys because they didn't bother to get a description of the objects um, from from the witnesses, uh, Rob, Robert Newhouse yeah. and, and uh, his family who'd seen the things much closer. And it wasn't until two years later that Ruppelt talking to Newhouse got an actual description where he said he saw the things close up and it looked like two saucers joined together as opposed right. to the lights in the distance. Well, let's blame everything on Project Blue Book, because we can. I... <laughs> <laughs> there's there's interesting stuff in there, but you kind of have yeah. to read between the lines to get to it. You um, sure do. I mean, ultimately, Project Blue Book was a colossal failure. But you're right; there is gold in there, if you know where. And and you know, and that's what people always want to know. Well, why did Heineck continue with Project Blue Book when he when he had such an antagonistic relationship with the Air Force all those years? Well, it was precisely because. There was so much gold in those UFO case files in the Project Blue Book files, and Heineck didn't want to lose access to them. 
So he put up with working with people like Hector Quintanilla. Um, and, and he just, you know, he, he bit his tongue and he was a good soldier, uh, just so he could continue to research, uh, you know, their, their huge, huge collection of files. Well, if you've looked at Hector Quintanilla's book, it's clear from one of the chapters in there, he disliked Heineck a great deal. Extremely. Yes. They just, they just didn't get along and, uh, that's not the best working relationship. No, it was horrible. It was quite horrible. Uh, the last question I've got for you is, who did Heineck feel were the best witnesses? Law enforcement officers, military personnel, air traffic controllers, pilots, air crew? Um, who would be at the top? Who, who, did he, who did he really think were the best best witnesses for this? You know, I would say everybody on that list would be tied at the top, but there's there's one little twist to that story, though, which has always puzzled me and fascinated me, and that has to do with the Michigan swamp gas case of 1966, because if you recall, a lot of the one of the distinctions of that case is that there were over 100 witnesses to these lights that were appearing in southern Michigan over the course of several nights. Over 100 witnesses. And many of those witnesses were law enforcement officers. And they all gave Heineck um, descriptions of what they had seen in the swamps where these sightings took place. And... Well, let me let me so, let me break in because I just looked at that case, and uh-huh. a lot of law enforcement officers weren't seeing the lights in the swamp. They were way away from those swampy areas, so it's not right. just the swampy areas. It was all around the Ann Arbor, Michigan area that the law enforcement officers and others were seeing these seeing the lights. Yeah, that's true. But when Heineck interviewed the law enforcement officers, they were strictly speaking about the lights in the swamp behind the Frank Manor farm. But what what I found curious about it though was where Heineck would usually put a lot of credence to those uh, to that testimony, in this case, he dismissed it all. He decided, I cannot consider the testimony of the law enforcement officers because he said they simply weren't good enough observers. They were not able to really give me any good information as to the trajectory and and speed and maneuverability of the objects they were trying to describe. And so Heineck said, you know, they're their information was less than useless. So there's this one time when when Heineck just said, you know what, police to police officers, no, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to them. I don't think I can trust their their testimony. That that has always puzzled me. Uh, could it possibly have been the Air Force response because there was a press conference called and they wanted the swamp gas answer pushed forward? Right. And Heineck was following that. Uh, he also complained, I think, that the he didn't have an opportunity to really sit down with the police officers because every time he sat down with one of them, the, the press would show up and stick microphones in everybody's face. Yeah, that was happening a lot. But he was able to talk to some of the police officers. I think it was Deputy Fitzpatrick. Heineck actually, a couple of days after the signing, Heineck actually spent some time walking through the swamp with, with uh, uh, Deputy Fitzpatrick. And Fitzpatrick was pointing out to Heineck, okay, here's where I was standing when I first saw the light. That's where I saw the light over there. Here's where it disappeared. So Heineck did actually spend some time uh, in the swamp with at least one of the police officers. But um, wouldn't, wouldn't that being on the site with the officer saying, here's where I saw it, there's where it disappeared, wouldn't that give him the directions and the azimuth and all of the kind of technical information he wanted? For whatever reason, what he heard from the police officer just was lacking in some kind of quality that Heineck was looking for. Um, and, I mean, you're right. It sounds as though that would be exactly the kind of, uh, the, exactly the kind of eyewitness testimony that Heineck would really uh, uh, value. But in this case, it just, it just didn't work that way. He just didn't, he just didn't see that it, was, uh, that it was worth considering. Well, I remember reading a lot letter in the uh, in the file about the case where Heineck was complaining about not having uh, needing met many more investigators to properly oh, yeah. research the case. Right, and meanwhile, there's Jacques Vallée and Bill Powers, Heineck's Heineck's two cohorts back at Northwestern University, and they're just waiting by the phone. They're waiting for Heineck to call them up and say, "Hey, get your asses out here to Michigan and give me a hand because I'm drowning in this mess." And that's the other thing to remember. That sighting was just a circus. It was such a mess. There were a lot of bad decisions made. Sometimes they were bad decisions made for good reasons, but they were bad decisions nonetheless. And they clouded some of the information and they uh, made some of the witnesses look bad unnecessarily. Um, and so, you know, when, when you look for the truth in the swamp gas case, it, it gets very, very hard to, 
really decide what the truth is because there were just so many things going wrong over the course of that investigation. One thing I do want to point out, though, very common mistake. A lot of people still believe that Hynek literally got off the plane in Michigan and held his press conference within minutes. That is not true. Heineck arrived in Michigan on Tuesday, and he gave his press conference on Friday. He put in a full three days of investigation. That's something that a lot of people get wrong, and I always want to stress that, no, Heineck really did his job in this case. Well, I think I think the other thing we need to point out is he didn't want to do the press conference. The press conference was oh, arranged yeah. by the public affairs office right. at Selfridge Air Force Base. I yeah, think it was, was Selfridge Air Force Base, and he didn't yeah. he didn't want to do it. He was kind of forced in the press conference, and he was forced into uh, – I guess underscoring the uh, swamp gas explanation. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't have any one explanation that he really felt comfortable with, and so yeah, you're exactly right. He felt that the press conference was very, very premature. He had no findings yet. He had made no decisions whatsoever about the case. But then the Air Force just painted him into a corner and said, "Say something. Come up with a natural explanation, or else." And that's really where the that was the breaking point in the relationship between. Uh, Alan Hynek and Hector Quintanilla. That's when the damage between those two colleagues just became so great that they really, they couldn't work together anymore. They 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 just couldn't stand each other. And that's and after that, that's when Quintanilla really started um, keeping Hynek out of the loop, not sending him out on investigations anymore, not giving him access to the Blue Book files. It really was a turning point in their relationship. Mark O'Connell, it's the Close Encounters man. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us about um, your books and uh, Heineck and Project Blue Book. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Always a pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me in. We'll uh, talk to you later. Once again, it's, okay, the, it's the Close Encounters Man. It's www.highstrangenessufo.com. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking with Jerry Clark. We're going to be talking about the third edition of his UFO Encyclopedia, which is just a massive work filled with all kinds of good information. And one of the things I think is extraordinary about this is he provides a long list of sources for every case that he, or every aspect that he talks about in the encyclopedia. And sometimes that becomes even more important than his take on the articles. And I, the reason I say that is you need to look at a wide variety of different sources and get uh, a, to get a clear picture of what's going on because a lot of people write from a, an agenda. They want to prove UFOs are extraterrestrial. They want to disprove UFOs. They have an agenda themselves. And um, when you have a long list of sources used to prepare an article, and sometimes the, the list of sources goes on for a couple of pages, you get a real good feeling for uh, a case. And you can look up those those. Um, sources yourself and see what they have to say and bring it all into focus there. Uh, once again, my uh, blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And like I said, there's a lot of good programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at XZBN. Take a look at that stuff, and I'm sure you're going to find something that's going to interest you as much as uh, this one does. Next week, I will be back, as I've said, with Jerry Clark. We're going to be talking about his UFO encyclopedia and the social history of UFOs. I think it's going to be an interesting thing. So look us up in 167 hours. We'll be back then. Thank you. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. Oh.
they are here and they've been here for thousands of years making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today.